you guys can't get this just any place. Uh, don't come back here next week, but be at Lionel M. West and we'll close this I Love Lucy theme down. Hey, let me pray. You know, our numbers swing wildly through the summer. My goodness. Uh, this will be great next week at Lion and Lamb West, okay? So everyone come, everyone show up at Lion and Lamb West next week, and we will see how many people we can get in that auditorium. And I will tell you, we had had our count at about 180, we thought, max, before yesterday. And God bless Russ Barnell. Russ was up measuring, and we've adjusted pews, and we're adding chairs, and I think the number in there is going to be something closer to 2.30 the next Sunday, so if we have some overflow, we'll probably put some seats out in the foyer, but we will make this work. Uh, Everybody's here this morning. See, they've been gone on vacation all summer, so we'll see what we can do. Let me pray again, and then we'll get into the Word. Father... Uh, Would you make this morning, as we uh, look at some of what you've said about a really important and big set of topics, would you help us to hear your voice in this? Lord, we're all coming from different uh, walks of life, different stages of life, Lord, different backgrounds, uh, different expectations for the future. Would you help each one of us to hear you, hear your voice just as you mean us to, uh, to take away no more and no less than you have for each one of us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to the theme of this morning, the I Love Lucy, you know, we've said it's a cheesy, uh, shameless tag on a 1950s and 60s era TV show, uh, memorable for most of us my age, give or take. Uh, But I love Lucy, for us, becomes I love Sophie. I love Sophia. And if you've been here before, you know that Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. So if you were a Jew reading the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible back in the day, you'd have been reading the word Sophia when you read the English term wisdom in your Greek Bible. And so this has been a very short series. We're in the third of four weeks today about some of the things God says through through the personification of himself in this figure we call Lady Wisdom, or Sophie for short. And that we want to end up doing what the theme song said, we want to love wisdom. When we love wisdom, we are in fact choosing to bless ourselves and honor God. And so that's been the theme so far. The first two weeks, we talked about wisdom generally. And in week one, We said Sophia, wisdom embodied in this female, this desirable woman female, Lady Wisdom. She was this person that was offering herself to one and all and inviting us into her banquet hall and she would feast us like a king. And we would get life and blessing and joy. It would be all upside. And so there's this great appeal to answer wisdom's call, answer God's call to embrace wisdom and live. We got to week two, though, and we saw there's a very different side, a very different facet of Lady Wisdom presented in the book of Proverbs. And of course, because this is true of Lady Wisdom, she's the personification of God, this is true of God, too, a very different side. And if you remember there, we said Lady Wisdom says to those who have repeatedly spurned her offer of life through herself, through wisdom, she said she would laugh when their calamity came upon them. And we looked at the fact that for all of us, whether it's the end of our life and death or whether it's stages of life where we're making up decisions, 
that end up making us up, there are opportunities present that end. We talked about Noah's ark. That The time came when the ark was built and God closed the door and the opportunities to repent and be saved in the ark were over. And you and I face opportunities in our life to make decisions like the paths in a wood. We get down the road. We can't go back and unmake those. So we wanted to be careful to embrace Sophie, Sophia, wisdom and God's wisdom in the times we're given. We don't want Lady Wisdom to say to us down the road, I offered myself, you said no, and you're going to live with the fruits now of your decision. So in those first two weeks, we were just looking at selling the concept of embracing wisdom positively and of avoiding death negatively. Those are the first two weeks. With only two other weeks to look at the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, uh, we could be all over the place on general topics. I've chosen two for the last two weeks of this series. I hope they're broad enough that they speak to all of us at some point. This morning we're going to talk about love, sex, and marriage as a combination, as a trio. And then next week we'll look at a sort of the futility on one side and the joys of life or the ups and the downs that you and I and anyone on planet Earth is going to face. So this morning we're going to talk about love, sex, and marriage. I'm convinced that no word in the English language has become more abused than the word love. Or that there's no gift God has given us that has been more twisted, distorted, perverted, and broken in this world than the gift of sex. And that there's no concept today more disfigured than that of marriage. Love, sex, and marriage are always meant to go together, and yet in our day, we're fractured, and so are these. So hopefully you have a study sheet. You can work through this with me this morning. Starting with love, love, sex, and marriage as just misunderstood. We're talking about love this morning in the narrow sphere of the Greek term eros, erotic love, physical, romantic love. You know, the Greeks had four different words to talk about some variation on love. We've got one word, and so it can mean all kinds of things. I could say, I love hamburgers. And I do, and that would be true. But that's not the way we're talking about love this morning. Physical, romantic, sexual love, erotic love. The Greek term eros is what we're talking about this morning. We have redefined love. We tear it away from sex and tear sex away from marriage as if these are three distinct and unrelated things. And yet the truth is God has always meant for physical, erotic love to always be tied to sex within marriage. We'll develop this theme as we go. You know, if you think about it, most songs that you hear on the radio, they're about some version of romantic love. And when you watch movies, what do you think percentage of movies you and I watch have some vestige, some central element about those those movies is about some form of romantic love. It is all over. We talk about it, we think about it all the time. Love as a verb, love as something we do, and especially in this erotic realm is never anything less than seeking what's in another person's best interest. I may feel great affection for another person. I may have intense physical longing for someone else. But if the effect of that longing and their treatment ends up being destructive to them, we may call it many, many things, but it is not love. 
Love as a verb always has the best interest of its object at heart, and that's true in spades in the erotic, physical, romantic realm as well. Thinking of the, the issue of sex, you know, the ancient Greek culture, the ancient Roman culture, if we sort of think back to that era, a biblical period, maybe a little bit before, we tend to think of them as sort of debauched, right? These these uh, pagan cultures that were given over to sexual immorality and debauchery. In fact, you know that if you study the epistle to the Corinthians, right, two major epistles, if you called someone in that era a Corinthian, and it wasn't because they were from that city, you were saying that this was a person who was given over to sexual immorality so fully that it was past anybody else's thought of doing. You were a Corinthian. Well, I'm convinced that the Romans and the Greeks and the Corinthians had nothing on us. I'm convinced that their milieu, their culture is pretty much like ours today as well. If you think, it would be hard to imagine a culture more saturated about, about sex than our culture is today. And we talk about the United States because we live here and in some ways I think our fall, if you will, from the lofty heights we've inhabited is somewhat unique because historically we've been so blessed and also because we tend to lead the world in a lot of different ways. You know, one of the reasons the Middle East, especially the Muslim culture, has been so antagonistic to the United States is not just that we're Christians and non-Muslim, it's that a lot of the culture that they really want to do away with comes from our country. So we see this in spades in the U.S. Sex today is expected of one and all, regardless of marital status, age, with whom or with what sex occurs. Sex sells. Sex sells everything and everything sells sex. That's the culture we're in. Sex isn't something to be reserved for marriage, but a thing to be experienced as early and as often and in as many permutations as possible. That's the culture you and I inhabit today. Sex is not about my being uniquely bound to another single other, but about me using as many others as possible for my own singular pleasure. This is not God's design for sex. We have taken this unique gift from God. It's meant to be exclusive. It's, it's powerful and it's meant to have a singularly binding influence on a man and a woman in marriage. But it has just been ripped out of its context and it's just been poured out. It's broken. It's cracked. It's fractured. It's ruined in our culture today. And last on marriage, did anybody, could anybody sitting here today think the the uh, confusion today that exists in the United States and around the world just related to defining the term marriage? Could you have foreseen 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago? You know, if you think of court dockets around this country, uh, regional, uh, federal, the Supreme Courts, they're filled with lawsuits that define and redefine marriage. It's crazy. I thought it was a simple concept, but apparently it's not. In fact, listen to this. This is from dictionary.com, and I don't know when they updated this, but this is online. This is a dictionary I use all the time. So this is their definition of marriage. It says, broadly, any, any, I, I know I'm in trouble right there, any of the diverse forms of interpersonal union established in various parts of the world to form a familial bond that is recognized legally, religiously, or socially, granting the participating partners mutual conjugal rights and responsibilities, and including, for example, 
So these are just examples of marriage. Opposite sex marriage. That's a nice example. Same sex marriage. Plural marriage. Arranged marriage. Etc. Etc. So this is the online dictionary. Again, don't know when it was updated, but as they're defining marriage, it's any of a diverse form of interpersonal relationships and on and on and on. Now you know, if you go to Matthew 19, Jesus was asked a question about divorce. And, and basically they said, hey, Rabbi, Master, Teacher, can a man divorce a wife for any reason at all? And this was an argument in their day. Divorce is not new to us. You know, we talk about the terrible epidemic of divorce in our culture, but that was true when Jesus was walking the earth too. Can I divorce my wife for any reason at all? They were discussing this in the day. And so when Jesus answers the question, He goes back to Genesis 2 and the definition of marriage. And He says to them this, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? From Genesis 2. And said, Therefore, a man, singular male, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular female, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, quoting Himself as it were in Genesis 2, defines marriage as a man singular with a woman singular for life, bound together in a covenant relationship under God. That's marriage as God defines it. But as you go around the culture today, who knows when you talk with someone else how they're defining marriage. We've redefined it. So, love, sex, and marriage, these are incredibly powerful gifts and they are a happy, if you will, holy trinity that are always meant to be bound together. And yet in our day and our culture, we've ripped them apart and we wonder why things aren't working out better than they are. A happy, holy trinity, love, sex, and marriage, always meant to be together. So, we're going to look at a bit of what God says about these gifts and I do think it's important to understand when we're developing the concepts, the problem isn't that we value these gifts too much. We value them too little. We don't value them the way we should. Rightly, appropriately. The problem isn't that we think about love, sex, and marriage too much or talk about them too much. It's that we don't think and talk about them accurately or adequately. The problem isn't volume, it's accuracy and adequacy. So, when we talk about love, sex, and marriage, we're really saying that God joins romantic love and sex in marriage. God puts those three uniquely together. Love, erotic love, physical romantic love, joined with sex in marriage. That's the trinity. That's, marriage is the form in which those other two are meant to occur. The great mistake we make today and the great mistake through history is to try to rip these apart as if they are independent unions that you can mix and match, building blocks that I can rearrange as it suits me. God always meant them to be together. If you think of fire, think of the wildfires in the Rocky Mountain or uh, California, real dry conditions and the fires blow up. You know, that fire, uncontrolled, unconstrained, highly destructive. Homes, lives, all kinds of things lost because fire is out of control. If you take that same element, though, fire, and you control it tightly, and you put it in a furnace, and you blow air across it, it heats your home, and you live in a comfortable environment through the winter months. 
the fire's the same thing. It's where it is and it's under what constraints it is or it isn't that either means it's destructive or it's beneficial. And love, sex, and marriage are that same thing. They're very powerful, ripped apart from each other, uncontrolled. They're highly destructive. But welded together the way God always meant to be, they're a great, great blessing. Listen to some of the warnings from Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 where the dad is speaking to his son. I want to be quick to say, we could say a father or a mother is speaking to a daughter as well. These, these roles reverse nicely. But Proverbs, the, the thought is a father's addressing his son to pass on this wisdom. But gals, this doesn't exclude you. This is true for you as well. It's interesting to me that when you look through this particular book of wisdom, Proverbs, you have this running theme through chapters 5, 6, and 7 about sex. It's interwoven throughout. He keeps coming back to it because even then it was a big deal and there was much to be avoided. So let me run through three of the passages that talk about avoiding love and sex disconnected from marriage. Father warns about that. Then we'll look at some of the passages where they're put together in the way God means. So in Proverbs 5, verses 3-6, through 6, Dad says to his son, or ladies, your father, your parent, God the Father speaks to you the same word. He says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The forbidden woman in Proverbs is that woman who's offering herself illicitly for sex. She's always to be avoided in Proverbs. But when she comes up to this young man, or ladies, if a young guy came up to you, her offer in the moment sounds really inviting, really enticing, really good. If I'm standing there hearing her appeal, it sounds in the moment good. He says, it's smoother than oil. So if I'm just standing there and I'm just receiving that message in the moment, it's like, boy, that really sounds good. But, Dad continues, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. She's sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. That's the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. So on the front end, it sounds like this is a great thing. I can have sex. I can have pleasure in the moment. And there's no downside. And Dad says, no, actually, there is. it's a sword. I'm going to get cut in half in both directions. I don't get life. It takes me down to the grave. I'm going to get death, not life, out of this invitation. If you go to Proverbs 6, verses 27 through 29, and again 32 through 33, Dad continues to weave this theme of sex and its proper place to Junior. And he asks a couple rhetorical questions in which he compares sex again here to fire in a destructive way. So he says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Could I go and pull a bunch of coals in from a fire, hug them to my chest, carry them across the room, Dad says, and not be burned? It'd be impossible. I'm going to be burned destructively by those embers in that fire. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Dad's asking questions that the answer to is obviously no, you can't. You can't take that fire outside of the realm God meant it to be used and embrace it to yourself and not be burned. It's going to hurt you. You are going to be burned. Sex here is like that destructive fire. It's out of control. It's in the wrong place. He says at verse 29, So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. This is talking about adultery specifically. Not just, not just immorality generally, but adultery specifically. 
Verse 32, he commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Throughout the wisdom literature in the Bible generally, we know that sex outside of marriage is uniquely destructive, but if sex is with someone else's spouse, it's doubly destructive because now I've made an enemy. I've violated someone's covenant. Their spouse belongs to them uniquely. I violated that covenant, and so now I not only have the sin generally, but I have someone else now against me, pursuing me to my harm. And last in Proverbs 7, 21-23, we looked at this before when we showed the young man capitulating to the invitation of the foolish woman. The foolish woman, the, the uh, strange woman to be avoided, it says, with much seductive speech persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. He's sort of been on the brink, on the threshold. He's listening to this invitation. He's making his mind up. And then it says, all at once he follows her. It's like falling downhill. As an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast, an arrow pierces its liver, a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. You know, especially if you're a young guy or gal, if you listen, if, if this has been you, if this is you, or if this is any of your friends, relatives, folks you interact with, you know, if we boast in our sexual prowess of just hooking up with other guys or gals in our youth, and we somehow think that speaks to our virility and our desirability, and I'm, I'm so important that all these different people would have sex with me, well, Proverbs says you're no better than a dumb ox. You have nothing to boast in. You're just a dumb beast. You don't have enough gray matter. You don't have enough insight to know you're killing yourself. So when you interact with your friends and they're boasting, or if this has been you, or if this is you, we've got to, we've got to get a new set of lenses on. Because God compares that behavior to an animal that doesn't have the sense to know it's being killed. You know, out on the farm, if you've been feeding a brownie or, or daisy or whoever you might call your cow, your heifer or that young bull, they've been out there all year feeding away, getting fat, ready for slaughter. You know what you do when it's time to bid them goodbye and say hello to hamburger? You fill your bucket with grain, you walk out to the pasture, and you lead them back. Now, they're happy to follow you, aren't they? I smell that corn. I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. But they're going to their death, and that's the person who's giving themselves away to others in sexual immorality. They're not getting life. It's nothing to brag about. It's nothing to boast about. And I'm telling you, in this culture, the culture will tell you if you're not sleeping around, you have no value. There's something wrong with you. If you're a virgin in today's culture, you're a laughingstock to the world around you. This is pathetic. I've had adult daughters tell me before they were married that when they saw their doctor and said they were a virgin at their age, their doctor would not, would not believe them. And when they've interacted with people at church and in the conversation said, no, I've never had sex, their friends in church will look at them sideways like, I don't believe you. That's the culture, the time, and the frame of reference you and I are interacting with. And guys, it takes a really, really strong sense of having God's lenses on my eyes, having my mind renewed, 
Or this pressure and this force is so pervasive, it just pulls us along with it. So we've really, really, really got to know what God says about this. Buy into that or we just become part of the victims. We're just going to give ourselves away and find destruction in the way. So that's a big deal. and This is a huge, huge issue in our day and time. So that's the negative, okay? It's like, beware. Don't take love, romantic love, and sex, junior, outside of marriage. That's where they belong. That's the fire in the furnace. Love and sex in marriage. Love and sex outside of marriage, that's the wildfire that's going to burn you up and burn your house down. Don't go there. Now in contrast to that, Psalm 128 Psalm 127 and 128 are the picture of the kind of blessing God put on a household where they feared and reverenced Him. So in Psalm 127, it started by saying, unless the Lord builds a house, you're working uphill. It's not going to get you what you want. But boy, if God builds your house, your home, your family, it's going to be great. In Psalm 128, God tells us a little bit about what that blessed family looks like. So He says in verse 3, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now the picture is a husband and a wife, bride and a groom, they get married, husband and wife. They have sex, they have erotic, romantic love and sex within marriage. What's God's blessing? It's children. We should desire children. And so when they sit down at the table, the fruit of their love and love expressed physically, the fruit of that is around the table with them. And this is God's picture of wholesome blessing on you and your spouse. It's giving you children. Love and sex in marriage is producing fruit. And this wholesome picture of a family sitting around a table together, I love this. When I was working, uh, when my hours were at a 9 to 5 or 8 to 5 or 6 to 6 or 7 to 7, uh, sort of Monday through Friday routine, the most satisfying part of every week for me was Friday, late afternoon, evening, uh, worn out, tired, at home, and I'd go home to Kathy and the girls at our supper table. You know, and you let your shoulders down. The reports will wait. I'll get to them later. You just break around the family table, and you've got each other, and you just share what's going on. What, what's your day been like? What's God been talking to you about? That's the picture of the blessed life, love and sex in marriage. This is as good as it gets. You know, I hope if you're, if you're raising kids, um, I'll get sidetracked here if I'm not careful, so I'll get into the parenting thing. This, that isn't for today. But I hope that you have with your kids and your kids with you an affinity, a relationship in Christ that's more than parent-child so that when they grow up, You do have friends. When our kids are little, they're not our friends. We're their parents. We tell them what to do. We don't ask them questions. We tell them, this is what you do. This is what we do. But when they get older, because they've loved and respected us, we're able to take more and more of those restraints away because, Lord willing, they bought into God's principles. That's where their heart and their head are at. And so you end up with people that want to continue interacting with you as adults. And so you can sit around the table and you can say, what's God showing you in the Word? This is... This is blessing. This is what love and sex and marriage produce and discipling your children under you in the faith. This is great. So hopefully if you're in this realm of life now, you're seeing some of the fruits of this develop over time. This is meant to be God's blessing on love and sex in marriage. 
In Proverbs 5, verse 15 through 19, remember we said that um, sex was described outside the container of marriage as fire. It was destructive. Well, you get here to Proverbs 5, and now Dad compares sex to water, to life-giving water. And he says here, Proverbs 5.15, drink water, this is have sex, water's a euphemism for sex, drink water from your own cistern. Uh, for the Jews, a cistern was a plastered um, you know, opening underground, typically in which water had been collected. So it's plas- it would be clean. Flowing, drink flowing water from your own well. So this is bluntly, when you have sex, it's uniquely with your spouse. It's not with anyone else. Your own cistern, your own well. Should your spring, should the waters you drink, should the sex you have be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. Now guys, if you go outside to the street here and there's a puddle after the rain and it's filled with tire debris and dirt and who knows what else, you would not stoop down and drink that water. Dad says that's what sex intermingled with one another looks like. It's dirty water. Or would we go up to a farm pond where there's no flow through and it's covered with scum? Would you bend down, put your lips in that scum and drink that water up? Well, that's what Lady Wisdom says sex with one multiple partner after another is like. It's supposed to be with your own spouse. Your own, your own, your own. It's not what everybody else has trampled through. And you get the leftovers. This isn't what we're talking about. But listen to this at verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed. So addressed to guys, this is his wife. And his wife as water is compared to a fountain. You remember we've said for the Jews, it was important that water was moving. You know, stagnant water breeds disease and mosquitoes and all kinds of stuff. So for the Jews, it was important that water was flowing water. Well, here the wife or the husband, we'll change roles as you need to make this application, the wife is like a fountain of water, not a little bit, and not a trickle, but a fountain flowing up from a spring. So let your fountain, your wife, be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She's a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You know, the Scriptures are unabashedly sexual when God wants to talk about sex. You know, oftentimes the world says Christians are hung up, we're prudish, we're embarrassed, we're ashamed of sex. This should never be the case for a Christian. God made us, God made us, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. Sex is God's ideas, it's not our dirty little secret. So when you read through the Scriptures, it's unabashed, it's unashamed, it's right out there in the open. So the emphasis here is both her breast, your wife, your husband, you're only talking about that one significant other. And in that significant other in your marriage, then everything's good. So the terms are delight and intoxicated. Isn't that great? See, for the Christian should have the best sex lives. And I don't mean in some uh, ridiculous, uh, extravagant, overkill way. Christians who know who they belong to, our consciences are clear, we know, our sins are forgiven. We know our God. We know what God has put us together with in this marriage relationship. We of all people should have healthy sex lives. We should be able to be 
delighted and intoxicated in our marriages. We should be. That should be the norm because we get it. We understand the manufacturer's guidebook. In Ecclesiastes 9.9, there's another um, peon of praise, if you will, to the married life. By the way, if you're not married, uh, hold on. I know we're talking about marriage and and sex. We're going to come full circle here in just a couple moments, okay? Ecclesiastes 9.9, Solomon says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain or futile or short or brief life that He has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. In this world, you know that life is often brutal. And there are ups and downs and there are seasons and there are reversals and misfortunes as well as gains in life. And here Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that that marriage relationship, that love and sex in marriage should be kind of this buffer to the bruises you take in life. That that spouse is meant to be a comfort and an encouragement when life gets you down or to share with when life is up. But it's a buffer. I love the way the Book of Common Prayer in the marriage ceremony says this. On the front end, if you've ever read that or heard it in movies, uh, it stipulates the reasons why God initiated marriage. And the third reason is this. Marriage was ordained for the mutual society, help, and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. That's what Ecclesiastes 9.9 is talking about. It's this encouragement within marriage. Now, you know, if you wanted to help your neighbor next to you blush in church, just start reading from the Song of Songs. Read from the Song of Solomon, right? Some of you are not smiling because you're cringing. Please don't read from the Song of Songs, but I'm going to. Part of it anyway. So, Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, right? And we say, you know, back in the day, uh, just as theology developed from the early church on, a lot of times they'd look at a passage like this and they'd say they would spiritualize it. It's an allegory. And so this really isn't about sexual love between a, a bride and a bridegroom. This is really about Christ and the church. Well, listen, there's secondary application for sure, but there's primary application too. And this is a book about a husband and wife and the desire they have for each other. So listen to the bride. This is a Song of Songs, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, she says, this is the bride speaking. Let him, my bridegroom, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. His love, uh, the Net Bible, the New English Translation says, your love making, because the Hebrew word's a little flexible there. That might be a better understanding. So imagine this for just a second. This is a chaste young woman. She's kept herself for her husband. So she's been careful about physical relationships with other guys, right? And romantic relationships. She's kept herself from all that. And yet, when the day of her marriage comes, when she's anticipating the marriage bed, there's no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's no reluctance. There's no holding back. She saved herself for this time, so when the time has come, she's good to go. There's no embarrassment. This is a good thing. And this is a tough call you know, if you're a guy or a gal and you, you have God's view on marriage and you're keeping yourself for your spouse, it's kind of crazy when there's been a red light related to romance and a physical relationship all your life and suddenly the light's green. And you're like, what? are you sure? Can I go? 
But, but that's exactly what you see in this book. She's chased. She's kept herself all along. But it's her wedding night. And now she says, I'm ready. I, I'm jumping in. I'm full go. She says in verse 4, Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his bridal chambers. There's no reluctance. There's no reticence. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. This is what God intended. Later, in verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, this is some of the finest poetry or literature in the world, the end of this, this book. Uh, the bride says to her bridegroom, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. You know, back in the ancient world, they sealed things with a signet ring. Some of them were called cylinder seals. They typically wore around their neck. But if you wanted to show that you owed something or that you were the author of a letter, either in clay or in wax, you would impress the seal that represented you. So the bride says to her bridegroom, I'm the seal on your heart. My impression should be in your heart. You belong to me and I belong to you. That's on the inside. I know between my spouse and me, I uniquely belong to them. They uniquely belong to me. And then she also says, set me as a seal on your arm. That's not for him. That's for others. Because he's telling everybody, I'm taken. I have no other options. I belong to my wife. My wife belongs to me. That's why today we put on wedding rings. My wife would remind me regularly, Mike, that ring means you're mine. You're taken. So don't leave that wedding ring off. That's the thought. She's saying to the bridegroom, I, I'm on your heart. I want my impression stuck on your heart that you know I'm the only one for you. You're the only one for me. And we're communicating to each other the seal on the arm. I'm taken. I have no other options. I'm not available to anyone else. I belong to my beloved. My beloved belongs to me. And listen to this as she goes on. She says, Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame... Of the Lord. We often tell people don't be jealous. And that is entirely unbiblical related to your spouse. God is jealous. God says of himself, I am a jealous God. And that means God fervently, passionately claims those things that are uniquely his own. So he told the nation of Israel that he was in a covenant relationship with. He says, I am jealous over you. You don't belong to anyone else. And when you go and worship other gods, you're committing the approximation, if you will, of sexual immorality. You're having sex with somebody else. You're immoral. We should be jealous of our spouses. I love the language here. This is back to fire again. This is sort of fire in a warning way. That love has a fire and a passion that if it's violated comes out in a destructive way to reclaim what's uniquely its own. And it says the very flame of Yahweh. This kind of jealousy represents God's own heart towards His unique things also. She concludes here, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. You push love under the water, it pops back up. You can't keep it down. Nothing can dissuade it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. One, because why would you think you could buy this kind of love? Why would you think that? Why would that enter your head that you can buy this? 
He's despised with the thought that it can be bought. And, and two, simply because you cannot buy love. You can buy sex. You can buy attention. You can buy time. But you cannot buy love. Love, sex, and marriage are part of God's design and plan. They're great gifts. The Scriptures talk about them in both solemn ways that warn us, but then also in ways of celebration. Love, sex, and marriage are the means by which God not only blesses men and women, but of course new generations are conceived. And Lord willing, in a Christian household, they're raised up to know and love and serve the Lord because He is life. Remember, wisdom always represents God Himself. And God warns us about waking love before we're ready. On one hand, God warns us away from the illicit kinds of love or sex, but He wholeheartedly blesses and celebrates love and sex within the bonds of marriage. So, love, sex, and marriage, avoid them when they're not combined in the happy, holy trinity together. Welcome and embrace them as God's good gifts when that is their setting. Now, on point three, love, sex, and marriage as appetizers. If love, sex, and marriage are appetizers, what, what is the main course? Let me ask you a different question. Um, if you're single now, or if you're single again, if you never marry, if you die a virgin, is that the worst thing that could happen to you? Are you relegated to the outskirts of the city like an unclean leper? You know, are you in the abysmal hole of weeping and gnashing of teeth with the monks and the nuns and the virgins? Is that the deal? So if we, never, if we never experience the love and the sex, are we relegated to some second-class citizen we really haven't lived? Because on one hand, we're saying, celebrate them. God's good gifts, absolutely powerful, absolutely. All this good stuff. But if we don't have them, are we somehow cursed? Did we miss God's best for our life if that's something we never experience? And that's why I say, on another hand, love, sex, and marriage are meant to be appetizers to something better romantic love sex and marriage are great gifts but they are not the greatest gift the greatest of gifts ultimately applies to god himself and i I don't say this as a religious sop to you if you're not married this is the bottom line it's the absolute truth Love, sex, and marriage, they anticipate, they look forward to, they give us hints of the greater gift of face-to-face fellowship with God that is our future. From the wedding supper of the Lamb into the eternal day in which He ushers us, either after death or when He comes to call us to Himself. Think about this for just a second. Jesus says He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. And love and sex in marriage on earth are meant to not only reflect the happy unity within the Trinity, which they love each other, they bless each other, they encourage each other. They have different works and operations, but they're of the same unity, they're of the same quality and worth. It represents that. It also, though, it really does represent Christ and the church. And in this sense, love, sex, and marriage on the earth are an appetizer to wet our whistle for something better that's coming. Matthew 22.30, Jesus said, interacting with the crowds, that in the resurrection, you and I are like angels. We don't marry. No one's married in heaven except Jesus and the bride. Now, 
Kathy will lament to me sometimes, we're not married in heaven, Mike. You know, I'm going to get everything out of you now while I can. It's like, okay, that's fair. But it's as if you say, well, there's no one's married in heaven. And remember, we're thinking it's a great gift. It's intoxicating. It's delightful, right? It's supportive. It's encouraging. What could be better in heaven? But there is something better in heaven. And remember this. There's nothing on earth that's as good as anything in heaven. When sin's removed, the, the, the greatest heights of joy, delight, intoxication, fun, whatever you can think of here, they don't get to the bar of the least joy in heaven. So there's nothing that we have on earth that we won't have in heaven that we'll miss. Everything we have will be better. And if we're not married in heaven, it's because being married in heaven would keep us from the delights and the joys and the depth and the breadth of the experience of God Himself that He wants for us. So the marriage in heaven and love, sex, and marriage here on earth is supposed to whet our appetite for something better in the eternal day that we're headed to. Love, sex, and marriage should be an appetizer to us, getting us ready for something that lasts forever. The person on earth who tries to derive their significance or fill their heart merely or primarily through love, sex, and marriage is going to be sorely disappointed. You know you warn people going into marriage, if you think you're going to change your spouse and then you'll be happy, that's a setup for disappointment. I bet a few women could have amened on that one too. If we go into marriage thinking, you know, I feel hollow, I, I feel down, my spouse is going to complete me and somehow I'll now life will be great because I feel deficient, that doesn't work either. No other person can fill us up the way God only can. We're made for God. And ultimately, it's only union with Him that can truly fill us up. So, if you're a single adult, a single again adult, a single for now adult, the call is to look to God Himself to fill us up. To give us peace and joy and significance and a sense of purpose and place. That's true if I'm single. If I'm married, you know what? I do the same thing. I look to God Himself to fill me up. To give me a sense of purpose and peace and place and call. And it's out of that relationship with Christ that I'm able to be, God willing, a good husband, an encouraging wife, a spouse that can bless the other. But if I'm looking to my spouse to complete me, to make me adequate, I am going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. I can bless my spouse because I'm filled up by Christ Himself. Then I have something to give in my marriage relationship or otherwise. Think of it this way. If you and I can't find our soul satisfaction in the infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, ultimately good and loving God, if we don't find our sense of peace, joy, place, and purpose in Him for whom we were ultimately made anyway, why in the world would we think another fallen, cracked, broken creature like ourselves could do what the omnipotent, good, loving God can't? Why would we think that? God can fill us up. Another person cannot complete us. But God can. 
And if God completes us, then we have the life within ourselves to be an encouraging spouse or to be an encouraging friend or just to be somebody who can love others in Christ's name. But we don't get that from other people, not even our spouse. We get it from God Himself. Lastly, sorry I've run a little long. Uh, lastly, love, sex, and marriage is invitations. Uh, this is telling. If we look in the Bible and God's Word and we get God's mind on love, sex, and marriage, and it's entirely upside, right? The warnings are against abuse, not against the gifts. The gifts are entirely upside. So if we say love, sex, and marriage, great gifts from God. But we look around either at our own life, the lives around us, or the world around us, and we say, man, family lives are messed up. And divorce is rampant. And the families I know are my family. It doesn't look like this Psalm 128. That's a pretty good indicator. There's nothing wrong with the gifts. There's something wrong with us. You see, if the gifts are entirely good, but they're not working, that's a reflection on us, not on the gifts. So the broken nature of love, sex, and marriage is just a clarion bell to us in our world and our culture that we are broken and that we are fractured and that we are messed up. That we would take something as good and delightful and as life-giving as God intends it to be, love, sex, and marriage, and break this thing so badly and abuse it and mistreat it, that tells us something about ourselves, not something about God or the gifts He gave. And if that's the case, we really need to be saved. If we mess up some of the best gifts God could give, that tells us we're really broken and we really need a Savior. And think of it this way. Jesus bearing our sin and shame is the ultimate act of love. Guys, there's never been any love making between a husband and a wife that was more loving or endearing than Jesus' love for us when He went to the cross and bore our sin and shame. That's the ultimate act of love ever. Nothing will ever move that. Nothing can compare to that. And Jesus' embrace of you and me on the cross was the eternal love of God setting sinners like you and me free from ourselves to love and be loved by God Himself. And that is the ultimate thing to which love, sex, and marriage lead us. Father, would You, in ways only You can, by Your Spirit, would You convict us of the ways we need to retrench, we need to reform our thinking about love, sex, and marriage. Lord, would You help us to value these gifts in all the ways You mean us to? Lord, would You help us not to inflate them so they displace You, the giver? Lord, would You ultimately use them to call us more fully and forthrightly to Yourself? And Lord, through them, either vicariously or through our own marriages, Lord, would You give us a taste and a desire and an appetite of seeing You face to face, of loving You unabashedly, unashamedly, and being fully loved by You in return. Lord, would You welcome us into that relationship this morning. And Lord, for anyone here who's just feeling You tug on their heart, would you, would you give them that invitation that just helps them come in and know that it's safe, that in Your presence there's fullness and joy forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.